I'm Caroline Marrington. This is episode two in the second Modern Fairies and Loathly Ladies podcast series, Fairy Time and Space. And this seemed to be the topic that really seized the artist's imaginations most, don't you think, Faye? And partly perhaps because it was just so open-ended. I think the musicians really, really went to town with this one. With the space and the timings of music and the ideas, uh, we were talking a lot about belief and what fairies meant and what the magic was. And there was a lot about when you've undergone a fairy encounter, how it changes the person. So I think that's the bit that struck the artists. How do you make somebody feel it? That A really visceral experience and music seemed a very key key part of that. Yeah, and the the stories suggest that the world of the fairies is a world that's very much parallel to ours. It's one that you can enter through our world at various little points where the two worlds kind of touch each other and the worlds are going on in parallel. Uh, and one of the themes that really came up quite a lot in the course of the project was the sense of the fairy is the thing you can just see out of the corner of your eye sometimes. And that's when you have a sense of what the unseen space is. But it was also quite important in the stories that once you slide into that other world, time moves very differently. Definitely. So they were trying to represent that from the stories but I think they were also trying to find a way for us to do it to experience it and to create a gateway into fairy not just not just represent it or show it but but to make it so let's talk now about some of the things that the artists actually produced here and let's start with parallel worlds Jim's extraordinary film to which Barney produced that great cello music. So I think the music came first. Barney was playing with that idea of what it's like to see things from the corner of your eye or to hear footsteps on the edges of your sound. But when you turn to look that they've gone, the idea that there is this parallel world that we can glimpse and sense, but can't completely grab a hold of. And so he played with cello through electronic manipulation to create this sonic world, positioning the listener within this sonic landscape, which is sort of inaccessible. Let's hear some of Barney's music now then.
So that was Barney Morse Brown's cello piece, Parallel Worlds. And when Jim was thinking about his part in the project, not just recording the performance in the sharing in the sage, but actually his own creative work, he got a bit stuck, didn't he? I think he found the whole idea of fairies rather peculiar. He found it very difficult. So in those early days, we had this discussion about where we stood on the belief spectrum um, of fairies and Jim was firmly on the edge of oh my god I'm locked in a room full of weirdos and he I think aesthetically he really struggled as to what he would be able to produce that he would stand by as an artist and be proud of uh, within this topic that he found quite ridiculous and quite weird. But in the end, he latched on to the tale of Elidor, and that's something that we talked about in the last series. I think it was interesting, with all the artists, you could see a moment where the, the penny dropped or the switch clicked or something, and they, they actually found something that resonated with them in the stories. And uh, yeah, that moment happened with Jim, with that tale, and also hearing Barney's work, which is incredibly contemporary in feel. Maybe we can give you some sense of what was in the film, even though it's not as good as seeing the film itself on the Modern Fairies website. So Jim starts with this room of very stark, architecturally minimalist space with lots of rectangles and plain grey walls and a child around, I don't know, eight to ten maybe, sitting on a chair, staring at this blank wall. Then using some new fancy incredibly exciting video technology uh, Jim creates a weird black shape that is um, uh, represents this portal that the child is fascinated by and walks up to and tries to explore but this is all moving incredibly slowly uh, you, you get a sense of trying to feel what the child must be experiencing from this very lack of sensory data in this room to facing this bizarre thing. The way that it kind of pulses and it's, it's black, it's gleaming, it's like a kind of tangled knot, but it's also sort of iridescent and you can see how it, it pulls the boy in so that he walks all the way down that long space up to where this strange pulsating painting is and then something happens and becomes transported into a world of nature and beauty and sunshine and a hazy summer day idyllic environment. Yes, he's in the woodland and he's with somebody who looks very much like him. It's as if he's met his double, though in fact it's actually his brother. And there's a very strange late afternoon kind of light there and they're walking along with the light slanting through the trees by a hedgerow and one boy has his arm around the other one's neck and everything looks wonderful and kind of timelessly beautiful. How does this fit with the story of Elidor? Well, in Elidor, the boy gets shut out forever when the portal closes. But what's happening in this film is that back in that hall, back in that kind of gallery space, that twisty painting is gradually shrinking, it's losing its design and then eventually it becomes blank. So the portal to the other world has closed and the boy can't ever get back. Very enigmatic, isn't it? And I, th I think that's, it's not a narrative that you can just tell the story of the video. You could make your own meanings out of the film and where you sit with it. Is it that the child has been released from a world of blandness into its idyllic haven and reunited with 
a happier self or is it that it's been lured into a magical world through the promise of mystery and beauty and is then trapped and not able to return back to the real world and maybe he doesn't want to come back but i think there's something about the way the camera is positioned there and also our knowledge on the project that the two boys are jim's own two sons that the camera and Jim then remain outside and the children have vanished into this world, perhaps forever. And there's certainly something about being a father and seeing your children in the innocence and beauty of childhood, in a childhood that's sort of characterised by that summer afternoon light, and maybe having a sense that that's not a stage in human life that can last forever. But it does, I think, this film, give us a very strong sense that there is another place and, and maybe even a better place that we can't quite see. And it's a nostalgic world of childhood and innocence, maybe, that we get kind of shut out of. You don't have to go through a magic portal in a mysterious gallery to reach the other world, though. And at times you can be aware that it's always there, just hovering at the edge of your vision. Ewan was inspired by a photograph that he took on a sleeper train going up to Scotland. He was looking across at his companion in late slanting afternoon light and suddenly her shadow looked like a weird human figure in silhouette with an oddly pointed nose, very different from her. And he had the strange sense that the person that he thought he knew wasn't familiar at all and that the shadow was slipping away somewhere else into another space. And he composed this song, Sleeper. I'm a sleeper leaving London Mind already in the north Hearing echoes from the high rocks Where beliefs linger still Out the window catching moments Between time and tired to sleep and the stillness of the mind I saw I did not see I saw I did not see I saw I did not see now I know as the day was growing the sun was growing dim when the shadow into motion tossed her head. Just a flicker in the light of a faint and dusky face. Silent I must run just let me Dusty 
stretching sleepy strands till they snap and break away. Lint and flax, smell of earth, scent of merriment and mirth with a white heart burst in time. I will never understand. Shoot your deer, beat your grouse, lay the trees low with your iron. Our homes, the grazing ground, now the hills are lying barren. As you sleep, we go to dance on the back of the Such things don't happen now. I saw and I did not see. I saw and I did not see. I saw and I did not see. Mary loves traditional stories. And one of the tales that particularly caught her imagination was the tale of King Hela. King Hela was a legendary king who went on a visit to the world of the fairies and found that he'd stayed there for 300 years. On leaving, he was given the present of a little dog and was told he could dismount from his horse only when the dog jumped down from the horse. And he hasn't jumped down yet. So Hela and his men and their horses and dogs are still riding. So King Hurler's caught in space that is no space and he's got to keep moving, but he also moves in a different and eternal time, sometimes connected with the wild hunt, men, horses and dogs that rampage through the skies, particularly when there's crisis. It's part of a larger musical project on Hurler that Mary began to work on and she connected the journeying to the Gabriel Hounds, as they're called in her part of Yorkshire, a pack of phantom dogs heard barking in the sky, a sign of ill omen.
There's ghosts in those notes as wildfowl fly south. So he shall die and rise, riding the wild wastes of the sky to the end of days. Souls will race, doomed to a moonless chase. And kin, the legend sings, and the hounds of hell draw you under the spell. And like Hurler's little dog that still hasn't jumped down, it's a very dark idea of being stuck in a place where there's no rest, no way out, and there's the pack of dogs that are accompanying you through the night. Similarly to Barney's playing with Space and Sound, Inga created some music that opens up possibilities of moving into a different, unseen dimension through music. She stretched sound, speeding time up and slowing it down, giving the listener a visceral sensation of being moved in a piece called Time Squint.
Ray, you've been always interested in how to make medieval stories into new songs. And one of your earlier songs was Sir Orfeo, a tale of a woman snatched away by the king of the fairies and how her husband got her back. And in some ways that was a kind of forerunner to this project. But still thinking about the way in which the fairy world can erupt into this one, you turn another medieval romance into a song. So the knight meets his fairy mistress, but when he breaks the taboo that he must never ever speak of her, she vanishes and he's in real danger of being executed for insulting the queen. And the poem opens up the question of whether the fairy lover can ever forgive him and whether she'll come back to save him. So what made you decide to make a new song out of this very long romance, Faye? When we were looking at that initial set of materials, it really struck me this this huge rich seam of stories there and how few of them have actually moved over into the traditional music realm. And I thought, you know, there's been some amazing contemporary music being made here, um, some really experimental sounds and some very modern interpretations of these stories. But my background is in traditional music. And I, I was interested in the idea of trying to create a fake folk song, I suppose, is one way to put it, but to create singable ballads out of this material in quite a traditional form. I just went for one of the big stories and set myself the task of getting my head around it and making it smaller. I picked this song, Silon Fall, and I kind of had a vague gist of what it was about, but I didn't have a deep relationship with it. And part of the whole process of turning it into a song was to develop that relationship and realise what it is in the song that needs to be kept and preserved and, and how you distill that into something that's singable. This was a 6,000 word story written in Middle English um, and it ended up as a 800 plus word song. So it had to be really reduced down but and translated as well into something that I could understand. And it wasn't just a case of reducing everything equally. It was a case of finding the, the strands of passion in the song and trying to develop a new narrative or decide what the narrative was and build it up from there. So the whole process of reducing it down took several layers, acknowledging what I was doing at different points as well. It was a really fascinating process to undertake actually. And what did you think in the end was the most important thing about the song? What, did, what could you not get rid of? Well, there were some things that confused me in it. So you've got this knight who's very loyal and generous and an all-round good egg. And you've got this fairy who loves him. And then he, he's seduced by the queen, but he turns her down. And in his defence, he says, well, but I love this other woman. But he was supposed to not tell anybody that this other woman existed. So he, he defied the fairies. And in fairy law, you're not supposed to go against what a fairy told you to do, or you will be punished. And he is punished. He loses all his fairy gold that he's been given, and he doesn't see his true love. Then in the end, he's going to be hung for this. But he hasn't actually done anything wrong. He was using it in defense of his morality rather than for personal gain, although he was going to gain his keeping his head, I suppose. So it took me a while to work out how to excuse the where it goes against what is supposed to happen with fairies. Again, like the calling on song to soften off the edges and every line I think in a song has to make sense to you. Otherwise you're going through the motions and yeah, the story really, really distilled down to something that made sense. So the key themes for me were about 
loyalty and trust and honesty and dignity and integrity and that those things ultimately are rewarded and recognized should we hear some of the song now salon vol here is a valiant knight gifts of silver glistening bright to squires and lords he gave so free when Lornval heard of his father's demise, he rode straight home to help and advise, sharing his wealth most generously. He gave so free in a year no more. He drew into debt and grew wondrous poor. A noble man brought low in his pride. He rode away worn, wretched and cried in sorrow sore in the shade of a tree he saw a tent deep in the halls hall within he found lady triamore pure as a lily in may she lay like fresh fallen snow on a cold winter's day cheek rose red eyes glass shone gray she said, Lornfall, for thy kind-heartedness Above all the lords, it is you I do place over duke and earl, squire or king Lornfall replied, whate'er should be tied I'll always want to bide here by your side Whatever fair or foul fortune shall bring Oh gracious knight, so kind and so bold It's rich you'll become with a purse lined with gold Secret I'll call, no one shall I see But make not a boast for reward unto thee Or my favour you'll lose most entirely With a store he dined with fifty poor guests Sports squires, fifty new grey steeds, all of the best Fifty poor prisoners were brought out of jail Debts all repaid, wealth for all to avail Minstrels rewarded and clothed without fail. At the end of the song, Longfall and his lady vanish into the fairy world, not ever to be seen again in this one. So, a bit like in Jim's film, the fairy world may be a better place where you can find a kind of enduring happiness and you can escape from all the mess and corruption of this world. And indeed, you get away from the effects of time. So in some ways, questions about time and space were easier for the musicians to seize on. Their imaginations were given lots of scope when they thought about these huge concepts that are hard to put into words, but maybe they're somehow easier to express in music. Music strongly linked to time, sound passes through time in a way that visual images or the written word doesn't really evoke. And the musicians are aware of time in their playing very heavily. And I think the ability for different sounds to change how that time is perceived is something on the periphery of every musician's conception, whatever work they're, they're producing. But placing it centre stage like Ingram Barney have done here is really interesting. There's also the visceral physical element. In the early days, we were talking about how we wanted the audience to undergo a transformation and to have a physical change. And I think the absence of literal words or imagery, the more abstract use of sound can connect with those deeper senses in an audience. The stories are wonderful and the words make us think in new ways, but I think the music helps us feel in new ways. And Marion Barney's treatment of Hurler, I think, especially manages to do both. 
So in the next podcast, we'll be looking at some more unsettling material from the Modern Fairies Project, the theme of what happens when fairies and children come into contact with one another. There's some dangerous and strange stuff in the next episode, so do have a listen. And don't forget to take a look at the Modern Fairies website, where you can find more of our work with illustrations and a film of the performance with lots of interesting blog posts from our artists about the processes they undertook.